Well, good morning, everybody. You've already met me as the world's worst lip reader. Um, I also have the pleasure of being able to open up this passage and think a little bit more about it with us. So let's bow our heads briefly and pray before we do that. Uh, Lord, uh, we do uh, thank you that you are not a God who just uh, whispers incomprehensible things, but you speak clearly to us uh, in your word in the Bible. And we thank you that you also give us uh, your Holy Spirit uh, to help us understand you better. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, you would do that today. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, on October 5th, 2016, a signed copy of Banksy's Girl with a Balloon sold for just under £1 million to an anonymous bidder. Uh, no doubt she would have been really uh, stoked. It's an iconic piece of art uh, and is an iconic artist, even though Banksy is anonymous, who had created it. But no sooner had the auctioneer's gavel hit the block than Banksy pressed a button and there was a shredder that he had hidden inside the frame of the artwork and the artwork began to shred. It made it halfway down before, it. thankfully, the battery ran out. But surely this would have been a moment for that owner where they have broken a world record of going from uh, elation, victory, I've just bought a world-famous piece of art, uh, to absolute desperation and loss. I've watched it being turned into spaghetti right in front of me. Can you imagine how that buyer must have felt as they literally watched their major investment destroyed in front of them? Well, before you feel uh, too sorry for the buyer, I should point out that Banksy went on to rename this artwork. It was called Girl with a Balloon. He renamed it Love is in the Bin. And it the partly shredded artwork sold just last October for £16 million. But at that moment, that buyer experienced something that we all know, and that is you don't really understand how valuable something can feel until you are faced with the reality of losing that thing that you're trying to hold on to. A loss has a way of crystallising our thoughts about things. And Good Friday is a day that is all about loss. Uh, we know that Easter Sunday is just around the corner. We're looking forward to that day where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But if we want to understand the resurrection, we see it more clearly through the lens and the reality of the loss of Jesus' life on Good Friday. In our first reading in chapter 10 that you don't have in front of you, we saw that James and John, the disciples, were really struggling to understand this as well. It was like they thought that they were personal friends of Banksy. They thought they were going to get an early bid on this great thing. And so they said to Jesus, verse 37 of chapter 10, can we sit on either side of you in glory? Their expectation is whatever the future holds, it is going to be good and we're going to have a front row seat and that can only mean good things for us. But Jesus has a different message for them in verse 43. Whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, the good news of the gospel ends with this great and amazing victory. But first we have to consider the losses that happen as we get there. And so I actually want to talk about four different losses that we're going to see in our passage today. Uh, the first is the loss of innocence for those who are in, involved in Jesus' death. 
The second is we have to lose that idea that we might carry that God doesn't actually care about us or this world. Thirdly, we lose the ability to say that sin isn't serious. And then finally, as Jesus loses his life, he offers to us the greatest thing that we have lost, which is a relationship with God. Uh, Well, there's a famous story that has passed into folklore about uh, Charlie Chaplin. In 1918, he was uh, hanging out in San Francisco. He had a day off from filming a movie, and he heard that there was a Charlie Chaplin lookalike competition happening in San Fran. And so he headed there thinking, this is going to be a great way to give back to my fans. Uh, So he rocked up, he walked to the, the, the entry place, about to say, hi, my name is Charlie Chaplin, and somebody handed him an entry form to the competition. And so I thought, well, this will be particularly fun. So Charlie Chaplin entered the Charlie Chaplin lookalike competition, but here's where things get difficult. Uh, He didn't come first. Uh, Charlie Chaplin didn't come second. He actually came third place in a competition to look like himself. Uh, How dumb do you think you would feel as a judge if you are standing in front of this man that you idolize, you like so much that you put a competition on about him and you don't even recognize him for who he is? If there's anything crazier than Charlie Chaplin losing a competition to be himself, surely it's what we read in verses 16 to 20 of chapter 15. You have it in front of you. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace. That's the governor's residence. And they called the whole company together. They dressed him up in a purple robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. Then they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. But they were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him, getting down on their knees and paying homage. After they'd mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and they put his clothes on him. Over the last three years of his ministry, Jesus has shown that he has power and authority in ways that have never been seen before and were never seen since. He'd healed people with all kinds of diseases, even raising Lazarus and Jairus' daughter from the dead. Jesus had fed thousands of people with just a lunchbox worth of food. He'd calmed raging storms with just a word. Again and again, Jesus had shown that he was the forever king that the Old Testament points toward and looks forward to. And yet here, as he meets people who have been waiting for this forever king, instead he's mocked as a poor imitation, like a a third-place Charlie Chaplin. For the synagogue leaders who should have been waiting for a Messiah, but instead they plot against him and they arrest him, For the local ruler, Pontius Pilate, who says, this man is innocent, I find him not guilty of anything, and yet Pilate then releases a known murderer instead of releasing Jesus. And for the soldiers who don't kneel before Jesus and worship, but mock him and beat him and make fun of him, they have every opportunity to recognize Jesus for who he is or at least what he has done. But instead they lose their innocence when they plot and mock and beat an innocent man, they become part of the problem. And this is a moment in human history where human brokenness becomes so clear, where we see the human propensity to say, I'm not going to do what's right and what might be clear in front of me, but what suits me. And it's an ugly moment where we see in a graphic way that thing that we have all done ourselves. 
While we have not personally met Jesus, we have all had those moments where we can stand out and look at God's glorious creation. And instead of saying, thank you, God, I want to understand you better, we say, I want to use all of these good things for me the way I want them to pursue my own interests. This is the moment as they mock and beat and take Jesus to die that we see the ugliness of humanity. And yet this is also the very same moment where God shows just how much he cares for us. Jesus, the very same Jesus who has shown that he has power and authority to do anything, uh, makes himself nothing. On one side we see the Pharisees and the guards and Pilate. But on the flip side, we see God's Son choosing and allowing this to happen. Jesus goes willingly to be mocked and beaten. In fact, if we were to stick a finger in our Bible and flick back to chapter 8 of Mark's Gospel, we'd say that Jesus says this is the very reason he came to the world. With a major pandemic shaping our lives for the last two years, with floods that have ravaged the east coast of Australia over the last two months, And as we've hit the reality of just the messiness of our lives uh, day by day, I suspect we've all been tempted to ask that question, when life falls apart, uh, where is God in all of this? If there is a God, why doesn't he do something about uh, the messiness of our world? But in the person of Jesus, we see just how much God does care for us. That he'd give his one and only son so that we don't have to face judgment, but instead as we approach God, we have the opportunity for eternal life. In the cross we see exactly what God has done about sin, that Jesus takes the penalty of sin on himself. As one of my favourite passages says in 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. We can't say that God doesn't love us because he shows his love for us on dying on the cross for us. And look along with me in verses 27 to 32. Are they crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left? Are those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, ha, the one who said he'd destroy the temple and uh, rebuild it in three days, save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, well, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. But why did Jesus have to die? Why didn't Jesus just save himself? Because here is the moment where we lose any ability to say that sin is not a serious thing. Jesus could have said, my role and my mission in life is to show you how to live a good life. I want to be like a self-help guru. That is my mission. What Jesus could have said as he was being mocked and beaten, I'm going to call down a legion of angels and they are going to show you what's what and then you're going to see the power and the authority that I have. But Jesus, who is the Son of God, who has the right and the power and the might to do anything, chose to make himself nothing because he recognises the seriousness of sin, that sin is that thing that separates us from God. And the penalty of our sin laid out all the way back at the first book of the Bible in Genesis is that we will face death and separation 
and that this reality of death and separation from God must be dealt with. Either we deal with it by paying the penalty for choosing to ignore God and God says if the reality is we'll be separated at your death for eternity or we accept that Jesus chooses willingly to die on our behalf to suffer the shame of the cross and to save us from that penalty we deserve. It makes us feel uncomfortable But when we take sin seriously, it makes sense of the pain and suffering and injustice that we see in the world around us. It's not a sign that God has forgotten us or is ignoring us, but this is the reality when I say, I'm interested in my selfish ambition, I want to grab more, we want to reach more, this is what humans are capable of doing to each other. And it makes sense not only of those things that we see out there, the wars around the world, but that tension that we see in here as well in our very own hearts. At that reality that I know I don't always live up to the standards I set for myself. That I don't always love my wife or my children as much as I should. Or I don't always do as much work as I probably could. And that in the end I'm much better at serving my needs than I am serving the God who made me, who gave me life. It is difficult, it is painful for us to take sin seriously. But when we do so, that allows us to take our Saviour seriously as well. That when we see the greatest loss in our passage, as Jesus turns to the sky and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? We see this this moment in a new light. It's a, a horrible moment. It is a a painful moment, a moment of abandonment that Jesus is expressing. And yet God in his love and mercy takes this moment of great abandonment, of pain and suffering and sadness. And he takes his wayward creation who has brought this about and then he offers them the greatest opportunity through this that we might have something glorious to gain. If the news turned out good for the lady who bought girl with a balloon, it was destroyed and ended up being worth 17 times more what it was before, how much greater is the news that the monumental sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that he chose to lose his life for us, means that you can be absolutely assured that God loves you that God cares for you so much that he would do this, that he longs for you to be in a new and a deep and a personal relationship with him. Friends, the good news as we consider these losses on Good Friday is that there is nothing that you have said or thought or done that is so terrible that Jesus' death on the cross does not pay the penalty for it. That there is no skeleton in your closet so deep or so dark that if you put your trust in the atoning death of Jesus, that God can't forgive you for it. When we follow Jesus as the one who lived a sinless life, who died on the cross for our behalf, then we know that our sins have been dealt with, that there is no guilt in life, because Jesus takes all of those guilt things that we might feel as we look back and we regret things, and he nails them to the cross that there is no fear in death because those things that make us worry about what is beyond this are answered for us, that God offers us new life through his Son and that through the greatest of losses for Jesus, all people who put their trust and follow him 
gain the greatest of all treasures. And best of all, Jesus seals this new hope by rising again from the dead. But if you want to hear about that, you're going to have to come back on Sunday. Why don't we bow our heads briefly and pray. Our Lord, we do thank you that you love us so much that in a world of messiness where we might ask, where is God in all of this? Uh, you show us by entering that messiness uh, in the personal work of your son, Jesus. You deal with that messiness by dying on the cross for our sins. And then you offer us hope and new life. And so we pray, Lord, that we might be able to let go of those things that often sit in our hearts that make us feel that we are unworthy and that we might hold on to the sure and certain hope of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, if this is something that is, you can, no, come on up, Chris, that has challenged you, I just want to encourage you, on the bottom of the uh, readings uh, as well, there's a little uh, slip that you can fill out. Uh, I'd love to chat to you after the service, but if you have to rush off, you can fill out that slip, and there's a box by the back door you can st uh, stick it into, and myself or Chris or one of the other staff will get into contact with you later.